emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, we are thrilled to have our interview with the AICPA President, Barry Melanson. Ron, how are you doing? I'm great, Ed. How are you? You are not great. You have been laid up for the last couple of days with almost <laughs> flu-like symptoms, and you are. But pros play heart hurt, Ron. I know, I know. No, I wanted to be here for this, so I wasn't going to miss it. Thrilled to have Barry on today. Yes, no, we're we're thrilled to have Barry Melanson on. Uh, Barry is the president and CEO of the American Institute of CPAs and the CEO of the Association of International Certified Public Accountants. Barry joined the AICPA in 1995 when he was 17, I mean 37 years old, um, and is now the longest-serving CEO in the organization's 129-year history. Under his tenure, the AICPA has grown to become the largest membership body of CPAs in the world, and he has spearheaded a number of initiatives to benefit not only the profession, but also investors, business owners, lenders, and the general public. These include audit quality centers, private company reporting uh, standards, extensible business reporting language, XBRL, Ron, for those of you in the know on that little four-letter acronym, uh, and the computerized CPA exam, which I, I, I have a question that I hope I get to on that in just a little bit, and two consumer financial literacy education programs. He began his career in 1979 at a small CPA firm in Louisiana where he made partner in 1984. And graduated from Nichols State uh, University, also in Louisiana, where he majored in accounting with a minor in government. So, Ron, so we can push maybe on that government piece a little bit, too. And earned, earned an MBA in 1983, also from Nichols State, and was awarded with his alma mater's first and only, I like that, first and only honorary do do doctorate of commerce in 2008. Well, welcome to the soul of enterprise, Barry Melanson. Thank you, Ed. It's great to be here, and as well to Ron. And uh, I'm sorry, Ron's under the weather a little bit, but uh, I'm glad we could make this happen. Well, that's the the beauties, uh, Barry, of of not being in a studio. So we we can't even catch his cold, which is wonderful. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I travel about 200 days a year. I have a lot of opportunity for for catching other people's colds and uh, flus and everything else. So I'm glad I'm not in the studio with him. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right, Barry, so take take us from, and this is the quote, writes, a small CPA firm in Louisiana to president of the AICPA. D did you aspire back in, in the time, you know, hey, I think I want to be head of the AICPA someday? <laughs> yeah, I don't think that was the case when I came out. You know, like most people coming out with a major in accounting, there's just sort of this vague sort of knowledge of the profession. Uh, so that's that really wasn't, um, I, I think, something that I was looking at. And you did mention I had a background in government. I was very active in, in politics and government. And, and, and in some ways, that had a lot to do with what happened. I, I did go to a small CPA firm in my hometown. I grew up in a, a small city or a small town of about 50,000 people right on the Louisiana Gulf Coast. Basically, 
where the BP oil spill was a few years back. That's where I grew up, and um, I'm a I'm a Cajun boy, so I grew up in the uh, in the in the freshwater and 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 saltwater swamps and marshes of South Louisiana, hunting and fishing and all of those types of things. And went to a small CPA firm, um, and I, I think the closest thing to saying yes to your question, which is you know how people around you can really influence you. The mm-hmm. very first day I was a CPA, so the day back in the old day of, of the paper-based CPA exam and, and grades came in a few months later and things of that nature, the very first day I was a CPA, the day I got my grades, one of the partners in this firm, and there were only two at the time, um, walked down the hall to congratulate me, and he said, I'm going to call the Louisiana CPA Society right now and I'm going to have them take my name off of a committee and put your name on that committee because I think you need to get involved in the profession right away. So I don't know if he saw something, but literally I was on a committee in the profession the very first day I was a CPA. I always tell that story because it may have had something to do with my passion for what this profession is all about and and probably had something to do with me being where I am today. Or it was one of the, you know, rule of leadership number one, groom your successor, right? That's always. (laughs) Exactly. We all have that rule. And the older you get, the more important that is, right? (laughs) Certainly is. Certainly is. So, so, but what's, what's your why, Barry? I don't know if you, you, you're probably familiar with Simon Sinek and the whole start with why movement. Do you, do have you given any thought as to, to, to what motivates you? Why, why you do what you do? Yes, I am familiar with, with Simon Sinek. And, and, you know, my why is, frankly, I think that the men and women who make up our profession are the greatest collection of men and women of one sort of homogeneous definition, being CPAs or being professional accountants, of anything in the world. And, and as a result, our profession has these incredible people and and they have an incredible impact on people's lives. The, the profession has an impact on people's lives because we advise businesses, it affects jobs, economic prosperity. And when you, I now have a global role, and when you look at that on a global, global basis, it really has a huge impact on elevating people's uh, lives and their financial well-being, even country well-being. And that makes our whole environment and our whole world better. And when I say the best collection, if I just take the CPAs, let's say about 425,000 in the United States alone, the the comparison I would make to that is you are hard-pressed to take 425,000 of any other sort of single definition and find as few weak links as you will find in the CPA profession if you want to look at it on the exception basis and as many incredibly positive influence stories on the other side. I mean, literally, you, you can't take, I even say in today's times, you can't take 400,000 religious leaders and get the same kind of outcome that you get with our profession because our members have this sort of ethical commitment to do the right things, to make an impact, that give countless numbers of, of, of time and effort and treasure to communities, uh, they're called upon to be key strategic advisors. Um, there is a protection notion that our profession brings in a lot of the work that it does. And so uh, it, it really, that's my why. I think that what I wake up every day, I tell our team and our, our staff now globally, is that I wake up every day and I think about the profession. 
then I think about the individual people who make up the profession, and then I think about the organization that I am fortunate enough to be the CEO of. And yes, I have that fiduciary responsibility to run that organization well. But if I think about the profession first, it's about what do we do to make the profession better, and I would say in today's times to transform, because that's clearly what we're trying to do, to transform the profession because of the impact that it has on society and business and people. And and that's a pretty cool thing. I don't think a lot of people equate it that way about the profession very often, but that's that's literally my why. Well, and as a testament to that, though, Barry, too, as you know, thinking back on on when when you came to the AICPA as uh, its head, it was it was not the best of times, so to speak, for the CPA profession. You know, the stuff with Enron had gone down, and and certainly Anderson was a problem. But what I what I think I think back on that time, and I'm I'm not a CPA. I've just been a bit affiliated with the profession for a lot of my career. And when I think back on, on that, one of the things that, that you recognize is that there there's a lot of people who who were back who were at Anderson who had connections to that, but they 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 uh, persevered and they became in in a lot of ways stronger because of the, their metal was tested. And I guess the same thing is said for you. I mean, you you had a, a let's be honest a rough couple of years at the beginning of of, of your tenure, but it, but it, it seems to have made everybody stronger in the end. Is that is that how you assess it as well? Yeah, just to correct you on one thing, I was, you know, I was at the AICP and I was CEO before Enron, so I lived through all right. of that, all of the congressional activity and all of those things. But, you know, I, I can tell you during that time, um, we received thousands of letters and even in that time, you know, a lot of emails and things of that nature. And, um, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, the, the profession was... Um, the profession is very resilient, first off. And, you know, everything you did in that time, people second-guessed because everybody had an opinion of what to do. And, um, it, you know, I woke up every day, and our volunteer leaders on, on our board and chairman, Jim Castellano, was chair that year from Ruben Brown in St. Louis. And, um, you know, we woke up every day with, with a, you know, a bit of knowledge and a bit of insight into a lot of facts and were exposed to not 100% of things because some things were, you know, pr- private to e- entities, et cetera. But we knew a lot more about it, and we knew we were making decisions that we thought were in the best interest uh, of, of the profession, and that would make the profession in a much better position. Today, no one goes back to those times and says, well, you made some bad decisions, because the fact is, is that the profession and sort of the response of the profession overall, the people involved at Anderson and other places, and there were some people who suffered dearly financially at Anderson, but the the profession as a whole is more trusted today, not less trusted. It's more successful today, not less successful. Um, it's It's in a position to, I think, really lead itself through transformation, not in a position of weakness where the vulnerabilities are, are not able to be overcome. And I think I'll go back to my why, and it's, I think it's about the quality of people. And I think the profession as a whole, while that was a very you know, nasty set of facts and times, there aren't that many weak links in the profession. And so when you, when you don't have weak links in the profession, you are allowed to overcome that. We had a lot, for instance, I'll give you a piece of data that we were very, we knew very much about. A lot of people in our profession and a lot of third parties thought, you know, that the image and the reputation of the profession was suffering dearly through that. 
in actuality, the data did not support that. Because the people who responded and know people who are CPAs, it's the individual CPA that they knew, the man or woman on so-called you know, Main Street or the people they used or their parents used or whatever, and they knew who that person was and they knew what that person was like. And so they understood that those facts were about a set of facts in a, in a set of circumstances and it didn't paint with a broad brush the entirety of the profession. Most people had a misnomer about that, but we knew that that's what the data was actually showing. And again, I think it goes to the tribute of the people who choose to be CPAs. Very true. Well, we're up against our first break, but I want to remind you that you can get a hold of either Ron or, Ron or, myself, or myself by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com, also the website, thesoulofenterprise.com, where you can vis- see show notes and previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Barry Melanson, the CEO of the Association of International Certified Professional Accountants. And Barry, you and Ed were talking a little bit about Enron, and I, and I just have to ask you, what do you think about Sarbanes-Oxley? Did it help or hurt? How has that impacted since all of those scandals? Sarbanes-Oxley clearly has helped as far as giving, you know, adding to the confidence levels. There's a lot of data that supports, you know, for instance, um, investor confidence, confidence in the audit, and things of that nature. Um, it, it clearly, it clearly has been a net positive. It's strengthened, I think, the power of, of audit committees. Uh, which has strengthened the whole process of um, financial reporting. It, it gave us something that is really, really, really important that most people don't actually talk about. 
And that is a component of Sarbanes-Oxley is, is the notion of not only auditing financial statements, but in effect, in a technical sense, it's called Section 404, but auditing controls. And in today's world, and in a lot of predictions back in the late 90s and the early 2000s that we were talking about, is that it's about you know, a sequence of events or a sequence of controls that are in businesses that is really where the reliability comes for, from in the processes as opposed to a specific number. And that provision in Sarbanes-Oxley was a very critical one. It started a whole worldwide spectrum of not only auditing financial statements, but the controls or attesting to management's adequacy of its controls in its, in its company environment. And, you know, if you really think about where information flow is going, when you look at a financial statement, it's, it's sort of a static point and as far as an income statement or a, the end of a period of a static, you know, to a static point. Um, but where we are today, and I think where we are likely to be in the future, is that information flows are about the user pulling the information it wants and how it wants and where it wants. And so the whole notion even of, of stipulated financial statements could change. And what that means is you have to have control environments that produce reliable information instantaneously. Um, and so, therefore, the attestation over those environments is really, really critical. A lot of companies push back on that early because it was costly or, uh, and, and actually some of the standards were probably written wrong to begin with. Those have been modified. But it, it was sort of new. And yet today, I think boards and audit committees and CEOs would tell you confidence in those controls is, a, is sort of a peace of mind issue even for them as it relates to their responsibilities in an enterprise. I think we'll see more of that. And some of the standards we've devo- uh, designed in, in systems reporting, and we have one today in cyber, for instance, I think we'll see more and more of that as to what people expect from a confidence perspective in business and business reporting and business information rather than a specific set of information that somebody else decided was important for me to see. So in history, I believe that actually will be the most significant part that historians will write about Sarbanes-Oxley. Hmm. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, let me ask you this. I, I want to talk to you about major trends that you see going on in the profession. But, but what do you, what's the one issue that keeps you up at night regarding the profession? Well, the good news is it changes from time to time because those issues that keep me up, we do a pretty doggone good job of trying to be focused on those and doing things about those. But the the issue right now, I will tell you, is as it relates to the convergence of technology, which includes blockchain, artificial intelligence, augmented intelligence, big data, in the audit process, the way audits are being conducted, which is going to have implications on people, the structure of firms, there's a million implications to this particular statement. But the thing that keeps me up at night is when I look at the huge investments that the largest firms are making, appropriate investments, into transforming the audit, how can we help take that down to the smaller firms there are about 15,000 small firms in the United States that do audit. There's about 44,000 firms in the United States. So ones in that gap do things like compilation and review, so it applies to them as well. How do we help them? Because they don't have the hundreds of millions of dollars to invest in the technological uh, capabilities that need to be deployed in that perspective. How do we help bring that capability and a new thought 
about how to transform audit so that it remains incredibly relevant into all of those different size spectrum firms. And, and I can tell you that is the number one thing that I lose sleep on, and we have some things that we're trying to do to address that. But that is a, that is a very significant thing to make sure that small firms can remain in the core part of the profession, the audit and the test part, in an effective way. How do you see these new technologies like blockchain, like AI, machine learning? Are, do, do you see them displacing jobs? Do you, do you see them uh, complementing the, the auditor or the CPA rather than being a substitute to them? It's probably all of the above based on certain facts and circumstances, but let me talk about the opportunities very clearly. So blockchain, people who are in the technology space, you know, people on this call included, you know, you know, we know that people promise blockchain to be this um, unalterable uh, new type of technology that uh, really gives us, uh, you know, a less of a need to worry about uh, some of the uh, authentic issues of, of the Internet and, and Internet-based information. The reality is, is that the world is not going to just gravitate to that assumption. There are going to be huge opportunities for the profession to be in the assurance mode about what those actual technologies can and cannot do, and if you can rely on the output of whether or not those technologies actually perform as they're expected. Um, there was a report this past weekend of an, in the cryptocurrency world, which of course resides on, on above the, the blockchain, that um, you know that there was some serious fraud and serious loss of money, et cetera. So we're already seeing some on the periphery that those changes. Now, the fact is, though, blockchain will give us for the first time in the history of accounting a, a people, in this case professional accountants, to be able to see both sides of the transaction simultaneously. Certainly in a public blockchain, that will be the case. Never before in the history of double-entry bookkeeping would that be the true statement dating back to the 1400s. And so that will change how we have to do things. Artificial intelligence, on the other hand, will change how we deploy people at the entry level, for instance, in, a, in an audit environment. So in a large audit environment, a major, let's say, Fortune 50 or 500 company, you know, the notion of being able to take huge sets of data and, and even contracts like leases and the other and to use machine learning to look at that information rather than test it, to look at 100% of it, and to do it in an incredibly different scale of efficiency than a human can will change how we deploy people on an audit. At the same time, back to my system's point about, about Sarbanes-Oxley, there will be huge opportunities as to how does, how does big data systems really, how are they reliable? How do the systems related to augmented intelligence and, and looking at information, how reliable are, are those? And that's why that systems point I made about Sarbanes-Oxley I think is so important. So we're going to deploy different people in the audit environment. We're going to see many, many different types of technology people being brought onto the audit environment. Sort of what we think about the definition of what accounting is is going to have to change. We will face a point in time that CPAs and accountants and auditors, you know, how much of an audit and accounting expert will they have to be versus how much will they really know how to deal with the application of information related to the technicalities of accounting and auditing. And that's a different context. So I say all the time in my speeches, 
will we have to be gap and gas experts? We're going to talk to a bot on our desk, and when we have a difficult accounting or tax issue, we're going to get that answer. Our interpretive skills are going to be much more important than our pure base knowledge. And to give you a prime example, most CPAs who are at least, say, 40 years old today, they took a CPA exam in which we expected them to be able to recite the audit report. Not every exam, but often that was a question on the exam. You had to be able to write out all the words that were on an audit report. And I say, well, how silly was that? Because even when people were taking that, we did have like copy machines, and nobody was ever going to issue an audit report based on their memory of what the appropriate words were in an audit report. Well, we don't do those types of skill testing anymore, and that's going to continue to evolve, and it's really going to be much more of an application skill set, higher cognitive skill sets as to what is going to be expected from the CPA. So you don't have a dystopian view of all this new technology coming in and just flattening out and replacing people's taking away accounting jobs and, and all of that? I mean, it sounds like you're kind of more on the utopian side. Well, let let me say this. If we take it from a macro perspective, I think the number one issue in society will be how jobs morph or don't morph giving technology, how jobs are created, the time frame that they're created, the skill sets that people will have to have or not have. And And I don't think our government or any government of the world, I don't really even think the media, I, I, and there are very few people in corporate environments who actually are engaging in this process. And I think the time compression of all of these technologies coming together, from robotics to things that may be more applicable in in big data, et cetera, will have huge ramifications to jobs in general and will have huge ramifications of how businesses are run, including CPA firms. So when I speak, I speak a lot about driverless car technology, and people want to think about driverless car technology as it relates to, you know, it's a car and a driver, and we're going to go from point A to point B. The, the sort of the horizontal ramifications of that to the economy and to jobs are tre- tremendous. We can take driverless trucks that go across the country that are going to be, in short order, replaced by driverless vehicles. And, you know, you're going to have a person who today is driving that truck who's, you know, probably high school educated and makes a good bit of money. Those drivers make a good bit of money going to be very, very difficult to replace that quantity of those jobs in society in the time frame that's going to be required. So if I go to accounting, which is your question, we're going to see different mixes of people, and we're going to expect different skills with people coming out of school to be able to be deployed. The people I'm most worried about is the 40 to 40-year-old CPA, because they've got 20, 25, maybe 30 by the time they get to 65 years of work left in the profession, and they're going to have to really reskill themselves. It doesn't mean there aren't opportunities, but there is the need to rescale, reskill. I talk a lot about the notion of we have learned things in our whoever we are. We learn things. We're in an age in which we have to unlearn things so that we can learn the right things to be successful in tomorrow's economy, and that applies to accountants as well. Those who believe everything they know about accounting or the way you do an audit or the way you do certain things will carry you to, to retirement, you better be pretty close to retirement because we're going to have to unlearn and take different technologies and different skills. But I think the need for trust in society, which is what we bring to the table, 
trust in business, trust in everything, the, the need for that in society puts our profession in a tremendous opportunity, a net opportunity space. We don't trust anything in society, if you really think about it. We don't trust the Internet. We don't trust the media today. We don't trust religious leaders. We don't trust each other. So trust is an important sort of oil to keep economies and worlds working. And we are the, the, the most significantly revered profession sort of in the space of trust. That's our opportunity, frankly, to lose. Shame on us if we lose it. So true, Barry. Great point about unlearning. It's a constant theme. Ed and I talk about about this on this show and how difficult it is sometimes to unlearn things. I, I actually think sometimes unlearning is harder than learning. Uh, this has been fantastic, and uh, we're up against our break, folks, though. We'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or myself, you can send us an email at asktsoe at verisage.com. We'll, we'll post full show notes with our interview with Barry at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Abacus Next. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Results CRM, the award-winning Abacus Next product, is a customer relationship management solution that will automate your business processes, streamline workflows, and deliver consistent results. Cloud-enabled to provide access to your users anytime from anywhere. Grow your business in 2018 with the number one QuickBooks CRM. To learn more about Results CRM, visit ResultsCRM.com. Clouds come in all shapes and sizes, and the Abacus Private Cloud is the perfect fit. Abacus Cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business. Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we're back here on the Soul of Enterprise with the President and CEO of the AICPA, Barry Melanson. You know, Barry, I was reading a book at the end of last year called uh, 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy by a guy by the name of Tim Harford. And one of the, the interesting stories in this book, and I just want to, to 
to get your reaction to this because uh, as I was listening to the conversation you and Ron were having, he tells a story that um, the the original accountants and the notion of the word account, right, has 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 a verbal meaning. He said, you know, someone be would be charged to take uh, take care of a particular part of the estate and would give a verbal account of the things that were going on from an expenses standpoint. And the account would be heard by a witness who was called the auditor, literally, right, those who hear. And that, right. you know, the English language is completely stooped and the language of accountancy is purely an oral tradition. And what is amazing is that it, it seems that what you're saying is we're getting back to that. It's going to be people whose who's literally auditory skills, listening and hearing skills are going to be those that really uh, flourish in, in the coming era. Yeah, that history is essentially correct. And in fact, accounting goes all the way back to the cradle of civilization and um, where where the first languages, there was there was a need to keep inventory of how many bushels you produced on your farm and, and the, the cradle of civilization. And people started to, to have numeric type of, of accounting or uh, rec- records to say, you know, this... I produced X number of bushels and you had the whole surf and uh, element of what they were entitled to. And certainly the element of you that you talked about auditor is, is obviously with, with, with the notion of hearing. And um, I think, you know, is it in a literal sense of hearing? Well, to some degree it's interpretive and, you know, bringing things together is a form of that. I think it's probably as equal being able to communicate it outward as well. I think one of the skills that accountants and auditors have to have today is the ability to take complex information and to communicate that fairly simply. If you take tax as an example, you know, people who are the most effective about, in my opinion, about communicating about tax are those who can do it in a relatively simple way. Many, many experts in tax get very precise on all the exceptions, et cetera, but from a general knowledge perspective, that's not the way to best communicate it. So it's got all of those components is the way I would tell you, Ed. And I think it's, it's got, I think, like I said with the bot, you know, when we have the bot, and there, is, there are firms in, the, in, in this profession globally that are in the top three or top five users of bot technology of any industry. So it, it just tells you where that technological aspect is going. Uh, the ability to 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 hear what is the answer or technical notion, but then to apply it and to check for its reasonableness, I think is is where a lot of the skills will be. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I heard a, an interesting thing at a conference probably close to a year ago. Uh, this guy said, "Look, you know, if you if your job is replaced by a bot, your job probably sucks anyway." Right. I mean, if, if, if that's all you do. Right. And that's and that's that's clearly what people are, are trying to 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 get past nowadays is that you got to be you got to be providing value above and beyond just that, you know, cut and paste and assemble in a spreadsheet kind of thing. That is right. If the competition, not only in accounting, but in the world is about how do you create that value at a different level? And, and there is really a convergence of technology into human, and it's certainly, it's, it's certainly happening in medicine. You know, I mean, we have artificial parts to bodies all the time. And there's also the ancillary effects of all of these things converging together, which I think, again, the skill sets of, of accountants and auditors come into play because it, there is hardly any more the notion of a, of a vertical. I mean, everything and everybody is in everybody's business 
you know, everything is blurred from that standpoint. And that is true with technology and information. Um, you know, there isn't this sort of notion that an accountant has this dominion over a set of information that nobody else has. You know, good companies have that dispersed to the people who are making the, the frontline decisions all the time. And that's only going to increase more and more and more. And so there's this great blurring of which the people who can help focus that blurring are going to be hugely valuable. Great, great. Well, I'm going to shift gears a little bit on you here. Here, As you know, Ron is the, the founder of the Verisage Institute, and I'm a senior fellow with him. That's how he and I have gotten together. So wouldn't be a Verisage interview if I didn't talk to you about timesheets. So, um, time you probably knew this was timesheets. Yeah, you knew this was coming, right? Uh, is the ICCPA look looking at, at potentially changing some of its peer review recommendations with regard to you know ha- having people look at timesheets with, with with firms who are now moving away? Uh, thankfully, getting rid of the the billable hour and 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 timesheets in the firm, but yet those recommendations persist. Just you know, the uh, course of the fact that they've been there for years, but time to to begin to look to update those things. Right. It it is on the agenda to give you a a direct answer. Uh, We have to find ways for firms to, I mean, supervision is the reason why in a peer review process that time records are important because it is a way to demonstrate the appropriate levels of tone at the top and supervision and an audit type of engagement. It's not for the the, the very nature of keeping time on an engagement, but that's the real essence of what it does that you have the right partner level and, and experience level people in the process. There are other ways to think about and document that. It is a, you know, auditing is a, is a concept and it is a requirement that you have to document so that work papers can stand on their own to support the conclusion you reach, reached in an audit environment. And that's part of what peer review looks like. Uh, we, we have been engaged, our team in peer review has been engaged with firms that are moving away from timesheets and time records, and one of the hurdles for them to do it, it's not the only one, but one of the hurdles for them to do it is some of these requirements that that's the form of documenting the right level of supervision. And so our team has an agenda item to find alternative ways to address that in the in that stand, set of standards, of peer review standards. I, I was... Uh... On another subject, I was, I was speaking with someone earlier this week, and um, you know, in preparation for this interview, I was asking everyone and anyone who I I could could think of, hey, I, I'm interviewing Barry Melanson. Got what 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 questions should I ask? And and w- one, I had a really interesting conversation with someone who talked about a great conversation he had with you, and I had did not realize this over the the challenges of the the online CPA exam with regard to security. I would never would have thought that was a, a big deal, but apparently. Apparently it is. Do you care to share a little bit about that? I thought it was a fascinating story that he told me, so I'll give you a chance to talk about it on the record. Right. So, you know, the, the, the computer exam, I'll give you a little context on it because it's sort of a funny technology story, too, and address the security point while I'm doing it. So uh, the, the computerized CPA exam became a computerized exam in 2004. The project basically began in around 2001, also around the time of Enron and all of those things. More than 3 million sections of the computerized exam have been delivered during that time frame. So that also was early in my tenure at the AICPA. I used to tell this story um, because prior to the computerized exam, uh, way back, uh, you know, there was no even handheld um, calculators on the exam. And it was a huge, 
fierce debate inside the profession to put literally a $1.99 plastic four-function calculator on the, on the exam. Uh, I wasn't CEO of the Institute when that was happening, but I was involved in the profession, and I, it was unbelievably emotional. By the time we got a few years, not that many years, but a few years later, and we started saying, you know, you can't tell the world that we're this profession that is, you know, aligned with the uses of technology and business and still have a paper and pencil or maybe a paper and pencil and a $1.99 calculator exam. That doesn't compute with young people and, and et cetera. And so when we went down the path of saying we need to move rapidly to a computerized exam, I will tell you that the pushback was actually less than the $1.99 calculator, which is a pretty <laughs> sort of a, it, it's, it's sort of a human nature type of element, right? I mean, if you really think about how that element was. Security is very important. So the computerized exam, most people look at, you know, particularly in the U.S., uh, because we have state laws and everything, and, and, and um, state laws differ in almost any profession or whatever. It's difficult to have uniformity. But the CPA exam is actually, for about 120 years now, I lose track of the exact amount, but it, it's a large, no, it's greater than 100 years, has been a uniform CPA exam. You know, you don't have a uniform bar exam or medical exams, you know, any of the major professions. None have a track record like we do in having a uniform exam. So when you come to the technology world of that, boy, that's great. That gives us opportunity to give candidates more access almost 24-7. It's not really 24-7. We have few dark periods. Early in the technology area, that we needed that because of question banks, because if you and I are sitting next to each other in a test center and taking the exact same section, we're not going to have the exact same questions because it's pulling randomly based on a, a cyclometric sort of a matrix of what we get from a question perspective. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you, when you think about distributing questions to test centers around the country and now around the globe, um, Security, that's a very basic element of security. But even when, you, when, you're, when you're crafting questions and you're um, testing the questions in labs and things of that nature, which we do in one of our offices, even that sort of self-contained notion of security is very, very critical because we all know about penetration and all of those types of things from a technology perspective. And then when you begin to go into different countries, so the exam is, is offered, I think it's nine or eight or nine different countries today, and there are other countries that want us to offer it in their country as well. You also get into the notion of how secure their country infrastructures are because if for some reason you had a problem, then people would be accessing, in effect, live questions that would be you know, being offered or taken in test centers elsewhere in the world. So there are huge technological uh, elements, and we do know, of course, we, we live in a world in which we're pretty knowledgeable about uh, nation states having certain, you know, um, uh, security either issues or manipulation policies, if you will. And so you have to be very, very careful from, from that particular standpoint of how you set it off. And then individuals, right? So we have fingerprint or... Um, you know, uh, biometrics, but most specifically fingerprint capability so that when I go in to take the exam, let's say in a test center in New York, I could easily, the next section of the exam, exam go and take that in a center in Texas or somewhere else. So we have to have the capabilities, in this case biometrics gives us, to actually have 
the identity be determinable of so that that's the same exact person taking the variety of parts of the exam. So those are just some of the elements. Yeah, sure. Pretty cool stuff. Well, uh, that's a funny story about the calculator, and I can attest that. Like I said, as a non-CPA, nothing is more confusing than finishing up a lunch meal with a bunch of accountants and saying, "How do we divide this bill?" And they all look at each other. It's one of the one of the my pleasures in life. I don't know. I I can't do math without a calculator. They usually say. (laughs) Well, we're up again. There are apps for that, Ed, today where you can just even do your mo- you move. Yeah, around. exactly. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, we're up against our last break. I want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me at asktsoe at verisage.com. Again, the website, thesoulofenterprise.com. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit officetools.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with the president and CEO of the American Institute of CPAs, Barry Melanson. And Barry, I wanted to ask you about the demographics of the profession. That uh, you know, they say somewhat demographics is destiny. And how is that going? I, I remember one statistic a few years ago that I don't know, fifty percent, sixty percent of the profession was eligible for retirement in ten or twelve years. Do you have an update on that? Yeah, that was approximately correct, around that 50% number uh, a few years back. Um, But actually, you know, we look at it in bands, you know, age bands, and and we've actually been doing a very nice job of growing that youngest band. Um, We've actually had record numbers of people majoring in accounting 
literally since the mid 2000s, so about 2005. If we looked at the data in the 90s, we didn't have those record numbers. It, we, the numbers of people majoring in accounting was way down. We, we put a lot of effort. There were a lot of people involved, including state CPA societies and firms and obviously the institute's activities. And we reversed that trend beginning in the 2000s. And by the time we got to about 2005, we started to see record numbers uh, of people majoring in accounting. Those numbers have either continued to be records or been relatively flat. The last couple of years is flat or over, you know, at the record number level. So um, we've been producing a significant number of young accountants for, you know, almost 15 years now. Uh, that aids you in changing that overall demographic mix that you're talking that you just mentioned. At least the age demographic point. Um, and obviously, we've had a lot of people. You know, we, we our profession exploded. You know, in the in the 70s, late 60s, 70s, and 80s. So you got a lot of baby boomers that were part of that process. And so our job was, you know, as a profession, was to make sure that we were replenishing those. And even in the last few years, the last two to three years, we've increased the percentage of those graduates that actually take the CPA exam uh, by small increments, but we have started to narrow that gap a little bit. And that was one, after you get the record numbers, you also have to, you know, work the issue of who takes the CPA exam. And by the way, any CPAs listening here today, you all can do a very easy thing that is the most important thing. We have a lot of data. The number one issue that gets an accounting graduate to take the CPA exam, and every one of you can own this, is actually encouragement, encouraging that young person to take the exam. A couple of words, telling them how important it is to their career. We have surveyed and surveyed and surveyed that, and that is the number one impact on people taking the CPA exam. There are other demographics, though, Ron, that are very important. Um, so, so um, gender, we, we have been had, had a major emphasis on that, and obviously, for a long time, the number the graduates coming out of of college was slightly higher female to male for decades, literally for almost 25 years, usually in the anywhere from 52 to 56 percent. So, not a huge percentage. Um, actually, in the last couple of years, now males are exceeding females graduating in accounting. So that's sort of a you know, you have to at least ask that question, why? We don't have all the definitives on that, but that is an interesting flip from that standpoint. On the other hand, we have, you know, at least from a public accounting perspective, is how do we make sure we have cultures that really allow um, women to be in the senior positions? And there's great, uh, today, um, two of the big four, and in a couple of months, three of the big four will, in the United States will have their, C the CEOs will be females. A great story. And then we also have ethnic um, you know, diversity. And the fact is, you just said it's inevitable or whatever term you used about demographics. We serve entrepreneurial capital as a profession. And ultimately, if you're going to serve entrepreneurial capital, you have to understand well, who's going to own entrepreneurial capital. And entrepreneurial capital in this country is becoming more and more and more ethnically diverse. So our profession had better be more and more and more ethnically diverse if we're going to be the profession that serves that entrepreneurial capital. And so we've had a major emphasis in that. Still a lot of work to do. Uh, actually, a big piece of that is actually the inclusion part, keeping people in that come to the profession from uh, diverse backgrounds, uh, not only producing them in the colleges and universities. So demographics, the makeup of the profession is a big thing that we monitor, manage, and try to impact with a variety of strategies. Sure. 
And and on that note, Barry, since a good chunk of the professions, the firms out there are smaller or sole, even sole proprietors, which probably comprise a pretty good share of, of our audience as well, what advice would you give to a small CPA firm these days? Well, I think... I, I, let's, I'm going to say to that small CPA firm who's, let's say, 40 or 45, I might give a different advice if, you know, a person was very close to retirement or whatever. I think then it's the succession issue. Do you, do you, you know, do you, the, the, the merger acquisition phenomenon, which is very, very great in the profession, those are at record numbers as well. But if you focus on the mid-career person who might be in a very, very small firm, I think, I think first you have to embrace the change in the work and, and, you know, we didn't even talk about cloud today because it's almost passe because it's been around for, you know, seven or eight years, but cloud services are a huge part of the larger firm environment and it's one that in a smaller firm environment you can be very, very competitive in. So it's, it's cloud services for the top 100 firms below the big four today would have been 0% of their revenue about eight years ago, and today it's about 10% of their revenue. So it's a huge element of, uh, of where the profession is going. And as a small firm, you can compete nicely from that standpoint. Um, I think there's also a notion of niching that has to be part of the psyche of people who are mid-career in a very small firm. It is very, very difficult with the complexity of the world we're in to be all things to all people. And so you, the more successful you're going to be, there is probably a correlation to how niched you are in a particular part of the profession or a particular discipline within a part of the profession or an industry within the discipline and the part of the profession. I think, I think you have to seriously step back and, and, and think about those things. Um, and, you know, there, depending on your clientele, there may be a need for you to have relationships or you know, movement towards larger footprint firms that can bring different resources together. And that depends on that. And we haven't talked about tax, but, you know, this tax act is going to change. If you're a small firm practitioner that does a lot of 1040s, you know, frankly, beginning a year or so from now, there's going to be a huge reduction in the people who itemize deductions and things of that nature. And that's going to have an implication. So again, more to the corporate or to the business entrepreneurial side and niching in certain aspects of that are going to probably pave a better future. Excellent. Uh, we've got less than a minute, so real quick, give me one thing that you would like somebody like me to say to a accounting high school class. If you want to be successful in business, the background that you probably will be most successful with is the accounting background. It can take you anywhere. Uh, that broad-based knowledge and accountants of today are not about debit and credit accounting. And in fact, we have an honors high school program today in accounting. And one of the key components of that is we wanted to change the image for those high school kids that it isn't about bookkeeping. It's about the dynamic aspect. Many of the things that we've talked about today in this interview that the profession is doing and will be doing in the future to help make society better and then the last thing I would have you say, we know that this generation wants um, things that they can do for the good of the world, and accounting is critically important to the prosperity of the world and jobs, and that is a great calling that you can relate to. Excellent. Thank you so much, Barry, for appearing on The Soul of Enterprise. Ed, what's up for next week? Ron, next week we're going to turn our attention to the medical profession and talk about the 
emergence of germ theory, believe it or not, and how ideas change in across industries. Excellent. Looking forward to it. See you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please do visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.